The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded during the 2019 Convivium Irenicum at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. The theme of the 2019 Convivium is Reforming Justice. Protestant Wisdom, Economic Freedom, and Modern Injustice. In this plenary session, Ben Miller and Alistair Roberts lead a guided discussion titled, How Should We Think About Social Justice? We were supposed to present a, a guided discussion this evening. It's turned into a little bit more of a paper almost. So what we're going to try to do is give uh, some blocks of presentation followed by times for a Q&A. We're going to interrupt ourselves to kind of take some time to talk about certain things along the way. But I just want to say as we begin, what, what Alistair and I are trying to do in this talk, in, in offering seven points for discussion, we're, we're really just trying to frame up some proposals for further reflection and research. Um, this is mostly an attempt on our part to identify some, some areas uh, regarding social justice for further description on one hand and further prescription on the other. So it's very an, a very exploratory thing we're trying to do here and uh, we're looking forward to, to your feedback um, right away. So I want to begin uh, this evening by tracing a historical observation that Charles Taylor made in his 1992 essay the Politics of Recognition, which actually um, Jake mentioned yesterday. I'm just going to kind of quote and summarize a few quick points, uh, a historical observation that he make, makes in, in that essay. He said that a number of strands in contemporary politics, I'm quoting him here, a number of strands in contemporary politics turn on the need, sometimes the demand, he says, for recognition. A demand that is given urgency by the supposed links between recognition and identity. Identity being essentially your self-understanding, what defines you as a human being. And he, he said the thesis is that, for, for these uh, contemporary strands, the thesis is that our identity is partly shaped by recognition or its absence. That non-recognition of you or misrecognition of you can inflict harm on your identity. And he says two changes, um, historical changes, have made this modern preoccupation with identity and recognition, he says, inevitable. The first, he says, is a collapse of social hierarchies. Um, and those used to be the basis for, for honor. You, you, you uh, for some to have, on, and, and, and it was not egalitarian, for some to have honor, some didn't have honor. And that was how kind of honor societies worked, these hierarchical societies. Now, uh, he says, uh, over against that, we have a modern notion of dignity in a very universalistic, universalistic and egalitarian sense. So instead of honor in, in hierarchy, you now have dignity. Um, and the underlying premise of dignity is that everyone shares it. So we speak in terms of dignity. So that, that was the first change. Collapse of social hierarchies moving to this uh, sort of egalitarian idea of dignity. The second change is a new understanding of what individual identity is, a very individualized sense of identity. My identity in this new view of things is particular to me, and I discover it within myself. So that not only should I not mold my life on the demands, on any kind of demand for external conformity, I can't even find the model by which to live outside myself. I have to find it within. 
That's a second change. And he notes that that second change, that sort of individualistic view of the self, that, like the idea of dignity, was also a, an offshoot of this decline in hierarchical society. Why? Because in those earlier hierarchical societies, what we would now call identity, he says, was largely fixed by your social position. You, you kind of knew who you were by where you were in, in the social hierarchy. Whereas this newer ideal of authenticity, by definition, cannot be given to you socially. It has to be inwardly generated. You have to generate your own identity. However, he says, in the nature of the case, we actually become full human agents capable of understanding ourselves and hence of defining our identity through exchanges with other people. He says we define our identity always in dialogue with and sometimes in struggle against things that other people want to see in us. That was true obviously in the older social forms where this socially derived identity was by its nature dependent on society. But he says this new authenticity, um, it, can't, it's, it can't be based on those social categories that once everyone took for granted. It, has, it doesn't enjoy any, re the, the, the new sense of uh, personal identity doesn't enjoy any recognition a priori. It must be one as much as the old way of looking at yourself. It, it has to be one through exchange. The difference now is that attempt can fail. So whereas before your identity was essentially secured by where you were in the social hierarchy, now you have to win it in exchange with other people. And so th that's his, his thesis. Now our, our thesis tonight tracks with Taylor on at least one significant for, uh, point. We, we would like to suggest this evening that the very shrill demands for recognition and affirmation in modern social justice discourse, or what are sometimes called identity politics, that, that these demands have arisen from a breakdown in older forms of society. And further suggest that this breakdown in older forms of society has left many people with a very fragilized sense of their self, which in turn drives them to tribalize in highly reactive communities of comparatively recent origin in which recognition can be experienced and in concert with which communities recognition can not just be experienced but demanded from outsiders. So to put it more succinctly, our, we're, our, our thesis is that social justice discourse, we would suggest, is driven more by social experiences and perceptions than by theoretical notions of justice or a just society. This discourse has arisen more as a result of social breakdowns and failures, real or perceived, than from abstract theories of justice. Or maybe to put it even more crisply, the social qualifier bears considerably more weight than any clear vision of justice. Now, since roughly the middle of the 20th century, obviously, I think, without tracing any particular genealogies here, there has been, especially among the young, a growing sense of alienation from previous generations and their traditions, institutions, and ideas. So an alien, a growing alienate, alienation and a growing, with that, a growing awareness of and sensitivity to systemic institutional abuses and betrayals. Many of which, I think we would have to acknowledge, as in the hashtag MeToo movement, have really been prominent and egregious. These are not just made up abuses and betrayals, but there's a greater awareness of them. And sometimes legitimately, in response to real abuses and betrayals, and sometimes illegitimately, fueled simply by rebellion, there has over this time period been a steady and deeply pervasive deterioration and breakdown, we could call it a crisis, I think, in older networks of trust. The system, now, is seen as fundamentally and self-reinforcingly oppressive, resulting in a crisis of authority, we could call it a hermeneutics of suspicion, 
toward institutions and hierarchies and traditions and authority figures of the past. Now I would want to say very quickly that to the extent that the abuses, the abuses, betrayals, and exploitations are real, the cry of dissent in the social justice discourse, the cry of protest, does resonate with that of the biblical prophets. And I think this is an area where we need to uh, see some common ground. The Judeo-Christian tradition has always been deeply concerned, obviously, for justice, is what we're here to talk about this week, both commutative justice and distributive justice is the real concern. Uh, more work, I think, does need to be done in the Christ Christian uh, world now on how it is that not just individuals but corporate identities and actors can be identified for purposes of justice discourse and how corporate identities can perpetrate and experience injustice as well as individuals, something that um, Hal Williams' paper touched on a bit this afternoon. So with that idea, we're tracking with Taylor that there's kind of been this social breakdown of networks of trust. We do want to now move to a second piece. So there's kind of the fracturing of society. The second piece, though, is the social media dimension. You really cannot explore the sociology, and it will, which we'll come to in a moment, the psychology of social justice discourse without taking into account the internet and social media in particular. And with that, I'm going to pass the baton to Alistair. So if you look at Taylor's essay, Taylor's essay was written in 1992. The dynamics that he discussed there, discusses there have really experienced the accelerant of social media. Now, there's always been that need for people in the last few decades to see themselves represented in entertainment media, the media more generally, but social media presents a different challenge, in part because our identity online is very much a self-representation. We want to see ourselves and be seen by others. And it's very important for people that their identity is acknowledged and validated because that's what you are online. You, you are a self-representation. And to the extent that that is not acknowledged, you feel threatened in something deeper than just your viewpoints, you feel threatened in your very self. And so this is something that provides part of the stimulus for much of what we're dealing with, I think, in modern social justice movements. Millennials today, and the generation that follow them, experience the fracturing of societal norms and deterioration of networks of trust and try to assemble replacement communities in a very different way from baby boomers for instance. If you think about the rebellions of baby boomers, they don't look quite the same. Millennial revolt against older ways is arguably more sociological and less ideological than what occurred in the mid-20th century. And in part, this is because of the dynamics of the internet. There's more going on, but media needs to be taken into account. Millennials are far more technologically savvy than their elders, and they're better navigators of the sheer volume of available information, and now, perhaps even more than ever before, leaders are those who are most adaptable to the changing media environment. When we think about traditional forms of society, often the leadership of the older generation comes with the fact that they have wisdom, wisdom that has been brought out through long-term experience in a particular environment. Whereas for younger generations, for our generation, I think it's a very different situation. Things are changing so quickly that it's the most adaptable, it's the people who are at the forefront of those technological developments that become the leaders. And there's often a breakdown of trust between generations as a result of that. 
The internet explodes worlds, settled, cohesive, tightly connected communities in unprecedented ways. Diverse ideas and cultures have pervaded what were once very monolithic enclaves and niches. It's unsettled social and cultural norms. So many of the things that we've been talking about in terms of the sort of belief systems that can give people a sense of belonging to a sphere, the factors that would enable a sphere to develop have been weakened through the sheer scale of communication between and across spheres. For this, there's been a breakdown of distinction between insiders and outsiders, and this has been for both good and ill. Traditional beliefs, even those devoutly held, can no longer bind together and form distinct communities without constant distraction and disruption. There's no longer a common story, even in communities that share a story, and the attempt to hold on to an existing story is often seen as oppressive and exclusionary. So for instance, think about the Western canon or the Western story, the sort of stories that traditionally we have told ourselves. But now these are increasingly seen as obstacles to certain parties being recognized. And if you think about it from the perspective of a, a grander spectacle into which we all see ourselves projected, it shouldn't be hard to see why some people do not see themselves within these stories. And so the former stories that would once work for our communities no longer function when these contexts have been exploded or collapsed into each other. The explosion of discrete, cohesive worlds has historically occurred in cities. It may explain why liberalism has tended to thrive in urban contexts, where a lot of different people from different contexts are coming into collision with each other. How do you enable people to live together in that sort of situation? It's also occurred in universities. It's often not just about brains, that we have a drift towards a more liberal approach within universities. It's also about demographics that there is a variety of different cultures coming into contact with each other and to live at peace with each other you need a certain system. Now that system will tend to be more of a liberal one than a conservative one. Since the internet however, we're all increasingly city, city dwellers now. Even the strongest, most cohesive communities are porous, subject to constant influx of and exposure to new and different ideas. So even if we're expressing the same ideas, we're expressing those ideas in a context where they are no longer just taken for granted, they're exposed to challenge in different ways, and the question of whether they are things that are exclusionary. And this is happening at massively high speed, a speed that's accelerating. We can also think about the internet as a realm of symbolism, that you have cases on the internet that are blown up and they symbolically represent how people are seen. Think about the Covington Boys School situation. It's very much a symbolic situation where people see themselves and they see themselves being despised by other parties in society or aggressed against, or dismissed, whether that's as toxic male, young males, or whether it's as people of color who are not honored by people who seem to have privilege that they do not have. And so in these deeply symbolic events, they can become lightning rods of emotion and symbolic charge, 
And that happens a lot online. And I think that's part of the politics of representation that you've been describing, that we see ourselves within this realm and we want to see ourselves be recognized. Mm. And yes, sorry, I didn't interrupt you. No, so maybe we've laid out two pieces so far. We have a lot more to do, but let's just, let's just pause there and see if there's any quick feedback on those two points. So we have, we're suggesting along with Taylorism in this breakdown between the generations and older traditions, that happened in a certain way with the radicals of the 60s, in a very different way now, though, with millennials, in part because of everything Alice has been describing with regard to the internet. Do you want to just bounce thoughts off that for a couple of minutes before we move on to how this fragilized self kind of plays out? Um, uh, Michael. Charles Taylor, in his more recent work, The Secular Age, um, continued to develop a lot of these things, I think, in his yeah. buffer itself. Yes. Ideas, uh, the internet piece and stuff. So I think. Uh, Alan Noble also wrote yes. Disruptive Witness recently, and that he talks about a lot of that idea in there with the the uh, yeah the, the millennials and the work recent that, that social media piece. So it's a very helpful book. Really further fleshed out since since then. It has. Oh, correct. It just makes me think in terms of that this occurs at a time when these other institutions are weakening. You look at that first point, and I'm just thinking of Christian baptism. Yes. In terms of, you know, uh, recognition and identity yep. coming from outside oneself to where they're... We'll come back to this. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's just... Absolutely. It's at a point in time where that is vanishing. Let, let, let me put a little yeah, yeah. pin in that mark, because that, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And I, that's, we'll, we will circle back yeah. around to that in an important way. I think, Scott, you had your hand up? I, that's okay. Okay. Any, uh, Patrick? Um, yeah, so, so one of the things that Taylor's talking about there, and it's, it's actually, I think, it's highly dependent on Foucault's understanding of power and how it's changed through society, and that power is no longer kind of centered in the, in the king, right? And so we don't, we don't derive our identity through contestation with the king. It's dispersed in the social body, and so we contest with other people. So identity is now structured in the self. And, exactly. and one of the things that I think is helpful, too, in kind of these sorts of analyses and in critical theory in general is, you know, and, and if we look at the bigger picture, these types of subjectivity have changed throughout history, right? from antiquity yep. to the medieval period to the present time and will in the future. The goal, I think, as Christians is not to kind of get back to a golden age, right? Yes. Say, like, well, if only we go back where they respect their darn elders. Right. <laughs> but, but rather to be like, okay, so in the present condition of subjectivity, how does the gospel answer this? Which is the goal of yeah. we're trying to move toward, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think that's, that's really helpful to kind of talk about these things. Yes, the sociology, yeah. right. and then how to respond to it. Not that. as a means of critique to say, yeah. like, right. oh, we're so bad now, but this is where we're at. Right. Right, so how do we, how do we, how do we breathe life, the life of the gospel? into that condition. But you have to understand the condition first. Agreed. So let's let's unpack the condition a bit more. Jake? Yeah. I, one thing that I think is really worth camping out on, Schaefer saw a lot of this coming. Mm. Not to the, it, it's Schaefer, and it's sort of messy and sometimes superficial. And, <laughs> but he saw certain aspects of the problem coming. And so he talked about how um, if he had an hour to talk to a person, We've never heard of the gospel before, never heard of Christ, never heard of the Bible. He would want to spend 45 minutes of that time asking him questions and listening because he had seen these young people who don't know where they come from, who don't know where they're going, and 
the, the most powerful thing he could do for someone with that experience is give them the experience of being heard. Yes. See, and that gets weaponized in certain ways, particularly online, so you have to be leery of that. But I was reminded, there's a, a quote, I'll stop here, it's from um, The Young Pope on HBO, so it's this young Pope played by Jude Law, who's an orphan, <laughs> and he goes on to become a Pope. But there's this exchange here, so he's this like arch-traditionalist, and one of the older kind of European cardinals who's super liberal, he's talking to me, he says, you surprised me, Holy Father, you are young, and yet you have such old ideas. And he responds, you're wrong about that. I'm an orphan, and orphans are never young. But the majority of churchgoers are not orphans, the cardinal responds. And he looks at him and says, says who? You really think the only orphans are those without mother and father? Mm. And I think that exchange touches a lot of the, like, there, there's a deep pain. Yes. Yep. And that's a, there's a per, that's a perfect segue into, into the third thing we want to talk about. So social breakdown, fracturing society. Number two, the social media piece. Now, number three, the fragilized self. What flows out of this? So the breakdown in these more traditional networks of trust, some real, some perceived, it's left many with what we would call this a fragilized identity. They're now searching for a community in which to find legitimation, in which to find, you might say, justification. You would certainly say recognition. They're looking for relief from, uh, relief from alienation, healing from abuse in many cases, and participation in something larger to themselves than themselves. They need to be re-embedded, to use Thierry Baudet's um, language from that thing, thing that Ruben Alvarado posted this week, which is so very good. Um, on uh, anyway, so where? But what's interesting, in light of your comment, Jake, where once people might have turned to family or church, it's 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 curious how, how social justice movements attract those who hi historically would have been primary converts to Christianity. Rachel Held Evans being an interesting illustration. Her, her type, if I can put it that way, might have been deeply attracted to the church at one time. Not so much now. They tend, this tends, such people tend to move towards, you know, wounded people or people who sense that they're wounded tend to move towards these social justice communities. And now this search for identity is focused really outside traditional institutions, structures, and relationships among more, we might say, revolutionary communities that are obviously on the side of the angels over against these old oppressive ways. Um, Mr. Dykma spoke about this a bit yesterday. Um, a quick sidebar about this. Again, to your point, Jake, many people who are attracted to social justice communities are really damaged by very real evils and traumas they've experienced. And while they're often fairly badly situated due to the youthfulness and inexperience and even emotional problems to form balanced alternatives to the communities in which they've been damaged, churches are generally not obvious places to which they might turn. In fact, the church is now seen by, enemy, by many as the enemy of identity especially for women and minorities. And we, I think as Christians and Christian communities, we have to, maybe we need to listen to Schaefer here, we have to navigate between really two ditches. On the one hand, young people are deeply sensitive to hypocrisy and inauthenticity, and they do not trust mealy-mouthed Christians who are sort of, you know, patronizing them, compromising our beliefs to try to win ideological points. Uh, that's only going to raise more red flags about the trustworthiness of the churches. That's one ditch. On the other hand, churches have to wrestle with how I wrestle with this daily as a pastor. How do you become the sort of community to which it would be obvious for the wounded to turn for healing? This is not an easy question for churches to answer anymore. I'd like to ask Alistair now just to hop in about how the internet... So we're moving... These fragilized selves are moving towards replacement communities. How the internet affects that project. It's a very big... Yes. I think part of what it has done is it has 
exposed all of our existing communities to these pressures that spread us out. So for instance, if you think about your church community and how your church community registers on Facebook, it's a very different sort of thing. Your pastor has a profile, you have a profile, the 14-year-old kid that goes to your Sunday school has a profile, and it does not have the same sense of a cohesive shared identity in which people can experience a deep belonging. And so people have to forge their own identity to a greater degree. Now that leads to a certain performativity of identity. Each person is bringing forward their own representation of themselves. And in that respect, they're also more vulnerable to people's judgment upon that. Whether they approve of it or legitimate it or validate it or whether they don't. It also leads to a sort of visceral tribalization. Now, if you look at a traditional community, there are people of all different ages, there are men and women, there are a variety of different people in different stations of life who are part of a single community. And they have a sense of togetherness, a common interest, a common good. Now that's limited to some in various communities, but it tends to be the case. One of the things I think we see online is a gradual separation of the elements of society. As individuals start to identify with other individuals who are like them as individuals, and there's less a registering of communal identities that give people a sense of a deeper, more rooted and grounded identity. Now you can also think about one's immediate community. There's something, your rootedness in a given community can be a deep reassurance. I mean, people talk a lot about safe spaces. Think about what your family represents for you. If you come from an intact family, if you have a healthy church around you, there is a safe space into which your fundamental identity can be articulated and explored. Now, for people without that sort of thing, who are experiencing their identity very much within the realm of social media, in other realms where they're focusing upon how they're represented, how they're represented on the stage of society or on the screen that they're watching, it's a different sort of struggle. They do not have that safety and security in identity that many of us enjoy as a result of the way that we've been raised, the context of given community that we have, the way that we've been, for want of a better word, privileged in a great many ways by the love of those people around us. So when people are talking about safe spaces, I think it's important to be sensitive to what exactly the sort of gut feeling that can often underlie that. Social media breeds a fixation on spectacle, the representa representation, not just the reality. When we're talking about social justice, often what's focused upon is what is represented in this realm of the media. There's less of an emphasis often upon concrete acts within local contexts. That's not to say that people aren't concerned about those, but there's a relative emphasis in many of these contexts of discourse around social justice that prioritize the representation. And that, I think, comes down to these factors of identity and also to the changing forms of our media. There's also a sense of non-agentic outrage that you have viral outrage in many of these situations that's sparked by a particular event, like the Covington Boys' School situation, 
And people respond to that and they have a deep sense of identification with that situation. Identity in social justice communities vis-a-vis -vis more traditional communities is not so much formed as performed. One of the curious results of this is how many um, younger generations within a community can viciously turn upon previous generations in the same movement. You can see a lot of this, I think, in the way that certain forms of second generation, fem second wave feminists are treated within younger feminist movements. The, you should be listening to us, take a seat, and don't push your particular line. There's not the same movement from generation to generation, and there's emphasis more upon a certain sort of performance. Social media also offers a peculiarly effective arena for vigilante justice. The outrage that people can feel about some particular person who seems to have gotten away with some crime or some wrongdoing. And the way that social media and the spectacle can be a way of striking back and achieving catharsis, not just for, in terms of that particular action, but in what it represents more generally, if you think about the Kavanaugh um, hearings, the way that people responded to that, it was not just about him. It was about all the boys in their lives and all the young men and what they represented. And you can understand on one level how that feels for people. And it's important to see where people are coming from here, how this can hit people at a gut level. But also to see how that can prevent serious obstacles to the sort of justice, the pro process of justice that we have, I think, in a Christian way, sought to uphold. And so balancing those two things out and recognizing the hurt, recognizing the sense of identification with the spectacle, and also the need for a proper justice where there is not a presumption of guilt, both of those things are very important. It can be observed here also, in some cases, the breakdown of networks of trust has removed significant barriers to radicalization on all sides. So these stories that your teacher never taught you this, and that happens on both right and left. It happens when we think about the people moving into alt-right, anti-Semitic, all these sorts of parts of the internet. And then on the other hand, people who see the way that for instance, people of color or women have been historically mistreated and continue to be mistreated. And the breakdown of trust is also significant in the many cases that have come forward through the internet of serious abuse of trust and the failure to deal with abuse within traditional institutions that have been focuses, that have been the places upon which we focus our trust as a society. A number of dimensions need to be kept in mind when attempting to evaluate the psychology of those drawn into the social justice movement. There's personal identity, there's community formation and derivation, and personal and community identity vis-a-vis -vis oppress oppressors. There's a curious relationship between personal identity and community in social justice movements. On the one hand, one is ostensibly, ostensibly admitted into a social justice group or class on the basis of existing features or experiences that comprise one's identity and happen to be shared by others within the group. 
So whether that's the color of your skin or a particular background or your sexuality, whatever it is. Um, and this could be one's sex or having been victimized or deprived or lacking privilege in some sense. But on the other hand, one's identity is in some sense activated through entering the group or class. One finds true meaning and value not merely through having certain features or experiences, but through participating in a class identity. I think you can see that in many contexts like Tumblr, the way that people will almost curate their identity and seek to explore how can I articulate what sort of person I am. And there is a certain set of identities that are out there to be explored and you affiliate with some rather than others. And that sort of construction of an identity, performance of an identity, existing factors being activated by a particular group, both of those aspects are important. And there can be paradoxically a loss of individual identity and a personal agency in receiving an identity as part of the group class. I found it interesting recently reading through um, Phyllis Chesler's book, A Politically Incorrect Feminist, where she talks about her experience as a second wave feminist in, um, in New York and just the experience of movements where they were deeply opposed to people expressing their individual identity. Why should you put your name to this book? It should represent the group and the idea that you would assert your individual authorship is an assault to the group. And often there's that same sort of dynamic in these contexts. And I think you see it very much in the form of when there is dissent, it's very difficult to deal with. Can lead to a commodifying of identity. The identity of a group or class can be marketed to those hungry for it. The group or class becomes an identity provider that can even foster a consumerist vision of identity as something on offer in particular groups or classes or communities. I found it interesting to see the way, for instance, young people watching transition videos on YouTube and the way there's a, a particular crafting of an identity and a modeling of identity that people can enter into and lots of different ways that they're taught to dress themselves with that identity. Thus, what social justice communities offer at a deep psychological level to fragilize selves is less about abstract theories of justice. They're not going to read Rawls or anything like that. Well thought out visions of shalom, but, and more about peculiar social phenomena in which identity having died in the collapse of older networks of trust and more immediate communities. So when you think about your more immediate community like your family, you have recognition in that and you have a standing in it. And that really can give you a sense of security. If you lose that, and if you lose many of your more immediate communities, and if you end up in a community that's vast, where you are just one minnow in a grand sea, you can feel that identity is really fragile. And so having died in the collapse of older networks of trust and movement into these larger frames, it's raised by entering a community of those similarly disadvantaged and abused. One's sense of personal identity becomes embedded and secured in, and to some extent derived from, the community and its narrative of victimhood. And that narrative of victimhood also expresses, I think, part of the sense of powerlessness that people feel. Besieged, 
and powerless. And so the agency, to the extent that it's expressed, is often in the form of petitioning some other agency to act on their behalf. And this can explain, to some extent, the cult-like dynamics in certain social justice communities. Too much is at stake were one to be cast out from the inner ring. It allows for a powerful measure of social enforcement of expected norms by the leaders. And many people within these communities feel deeply oppressed by the social dynamics within their groups. I think you're seeing this in many dissident feminists on issues of trans um, identity. The way that they describe their feeling of being ostracized from other groups of feminists. There's so much of themselves invested in this movement and when they feel that being threatened, they feel vulnerable in a very deep sense. The quest for recognition has also changed the way that basic freedoms are understood. And we've talked about, um, Brad spoke about the different quadrants, or the quadrants of um, freedom. Now in the 1960s, when you talked about free speech, it was primarily seen as free speech against authority figures, against oppressive systems, against oppressive and tyrannical authority structures that were closing down people's expression. Increasingly, free speech is seen in a different way. It's now seen as something that threatens people's recognition, that my identity is not up for debate. My story is not something for you to argue about. You have to hear and recognize my story. And so if we're thinking about debates about freedom of speech, we need to consider how the salience of freedom within that um, term has shifted. So it's no longer primarily about standing against the man, although in the um, set, setting of the Patrick Henry College situation, that's what it would represent. In most other settings that we find ourselves in, it represents something rather different. Free speech, for instance, is seen as transphobic. It's, it, opposed to the freedom of transgender persons to be recognized and validated, and the lack of such validation and recognition is oppression. Certain means are supported only because it is believed that they will result in certain ends. So free speech is supported to the extent that it is believed that it will lead to recognition, or at least is conducive to that. So, Alistair, it's just, uh, we have these three points we're working on here under the, uh, the, fragile, the psychology of social justice. You have identity, community, and the oppressor. Well, now, Alistair showed us something of a relationship between identity and the community. Now, there's a further curious relationship between a fragilized identity, his or her social justice community, I guess I can't use those pronouns anymore, and whoever the oppressor is or is perceived to be. Let's talk about that relationship. Power dynamics in the way that they're seen through the social justice discourse, power dynamics can be conceived of often in ways that paradoxically lead to the patronization and infantilization of those who are quote unquote oppressed. There's a lot of vulnerability that arises where your identity ends up being defined or secured by external agents. That does create a real vulnerability. And Alistair just pointed out how the agent who defines and secures you may be the class to which you belong, but it may also really paradoxically be the oppressor or the class of oppressors, note this, apart from the overthrow of which one cannot be made whole. 
So until the oppressor is overthrown, you cannot be whole. That, actually, that dependency, that vulnerability, is compounded in many cases by the appeal to the agency of political powers, or I guess now corporate powers, that are expected to right the wrongs that have been done and provide socio-political affirmation for one's class. We're going to return below in a few moments to the almost priestly role that is assigned now to political, academic, or corporate administrators in cleansing oppressive elements from a community. And the result of that dependence on external agency, whether it's the state or uh, whatever it might be, or even the actual oppressive class, the result of that can be a sublimation of your personal agency and dignity as you are basically rescued from disadvantage by the forces of this managerial revolution we've been talking about a number of times this week. Alan Jacobs points out this can even result in an, in an actual moral infantilization. He points out how the oppressed and social outsiders, the marginalized, experience what he calls, I think very brilliantly, the antinomianism of the excluded. And this is what he means by that. The marginal person cannot be expected to obey the norms of the very society which has oppressed him. So the very kinds of behavior that would be demonized in the oppressor, the oppressed can actually engage in forms of, say, verbal abuse because the oppressed cannot be subjected to the norms of the society which has oppressed them. So that is a kind of moral infantilization. And I do think one thing we would need to think about a little bit here as a model for a better way would be the parent-child relationship. There is actually no relationship that is more advantaged and disadvantaged where there's more power on one side and none on the other than a parent-child relationship. And it's interesting how that parents who are parenting well, despite this tremendous power differential, healthy parents don't abuse that power, it's true, but neither the alternative to not abusing power as a parent is not to rob your child of individuation and maturation through overparenting them. And I would just say, following that model a bit, that most of the external agents from which social justice communities are seeking recognition make very bad parents. There's often a, almost a search for overparenting, overprotection, a kind of infantilization that results as, 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 from that. It might be interesting to inquire the degree to which various model, varying models of parenting might lie at the root of different levels of susceptibility to social justice psychology. So having worked through a bit of this psychology of social justice, we're going to stop again. We've gone through four or seven points thoughts on what we've gotten through so far. And we are getting back to the baptism question, but that's the next section. Uh, yes, Jared. Um, I, I took a class in undergrad on dystopian fiction and talked about this infantile you know, kind of nature of, especially in something like Great New World, you see how these people infantile in the sense that they are completely uh, dominated by the desire and kind of this need for recognition in a way that, in a sense, is very childish in the sense that they're always needing sort of affirmation. They're always trying to, to make up for what they didn't receive in the context they have and the that they were in. Um, and I think that's a really uh, fascinating uh, insight. And I think they're, I don't know, just thinking through like the certain novels and creating a world that all the characters outside of the main character, they're all just completely enslaved to this childish There's a delicate conversation to be had about this in the context of racial tensions, which we will we'll cycle back around to a little bit. But to what extent, yeah, is, is there a kind of, uh, I think as Thomas Chatterton Williams has spoken of, like this fetishization almost of white power, even by those reacting against it. But, um, Mark. Um, the, uh, you know, you mentioned Taylor's above herself and then 
spread itself. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about how externally, how, I mean, there's internal psychological factors we consider how some, how that person becomes fragile. Um, where we start out there, right? But I want to ask a question about shame mm -hmm. and how shame is used in so many ways, perhaps more now than ever before, because of the media. So, uh, you know, Jonathan Swift, uh, he has a quote, something like, a man is never more unqualified to act prudently than when under shame and guilt. Mm. And so, to go, to go back to your, so I'm asking a question in general, what, what do you guys say, or what do you suggest, how do, how do we, as Christians, look at the use of shame. I mean, there, there are different kinds of shame. There's Schadenfreude. There's you know, there's Hester Prynne, um, and, and different ways that shame is used, even positively, good shame, bad shame, so forth. So, uh, and even to the identity question, how much can somebody's identity be shaped by shame? Absolutely. How is is the church? How can we use or constructively speak to and act against that grid? It's not just through our times, it's through the fabric of what it means to be human, unfortunately. There, I think you definitely see the language of shame having particular relevance. We can talk about slut shaming, victim shaming, um, being shameless, and as a positive thing in certain respects. When we think about even the appeal of someone like Donald Trump, I think part of that is the antibodies to a culture of shame. That he represents a certain sort of shamelessness that he can't be shamed into things. The power of shame does not have the same power over him. And that, in a society where... <laughs> In a society where shame has been so wielded against people, where people feel so exposed to that, and this is not just on one side of the political debate, I think it's more general. I think there's also the fact that maybe our emphasis upon representation within um, the fact that we are representing ourselves on social media, there's a greater sense of what it would mean to lose face, um, to be and non-personed within that realm. And maybe that's, we'll be getting more into the religious aspects of this just in a moment. We will, and just anticipating that a little bit, I think the, the quest for recognition shows that the hunger for relief from shame is externally focused. You actually can't escape from shame within yourself. You need recognition. And identity politics is, uh, politics is built on that sort of extroversion in its quest to, to resolve shame. And I think the church actually has an interesting opportunity in that to offer just simply the gospel. Because you can't actually get relief from shame by being a part of a particular tribe or even having state recognition. I mean, at the end of the day, that, 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 that's something that you know, only Christ himself can bring resolution to. I think we'll, we'll come at the end to how the priesthood and the kingship of Christ, um, I think, are critically important things for us to learn how to articulate to people that are coming from these kinds of shame experiences, in many cases because of real abuses and traumas. Um, so... And I, I, I also is going to open up this religious dimension in a moment, and then we'll get into some of this again. Um, 25 minutes. I know. We're, okay. We're, uh, well, okay. So, fractured communities, 
social media component, fragilized selves, the psychology of social justice. Now, Alice is going to talk to us about, it. I think, what is a critically important piece of this, which is that the social justice movement really is a religious crisis, ultimately. So, I think you can see this even in the language itself. Um, language of guilt and shame comes very naturally within the context of social justice debates. And I think what we're seeing is something that purports to satisfy what are ultimately religious longings and needs. And in the language, in the thought, in the imagination and relational dynamics of social justice, there are religious dim dimensions and dynamics to be seen. In Wokeness and Myth on Campus, Alan Jacobs points out the mythical qualities of wokeness, how the attempt to translate mythical intuitions into rationalized structures can be perceived as a kind of viola violation, and how the woke can experience disagreement as defilement. For those who have been formed largely by the mythical core of human culture, disagreement and alternative points of view may well appear to them not as matters for rational adjudication, but as defilement from which they must be cleansed. And this guy called Alistair Roberts wrote, <laughs> many, many of the piece I wrote on the new storytellers, many of the new storytellers are representative of a stridently anti-elitist and democratizing movement. The restriction of the theological conversation to trained academics or church leaders or the privileging of them within it is vociferously resisted. As a number of these writers are reacting against abusive and dominating expressions of church leadership, any challenge to their positions from such leaders can be experienced as an oppressive and authoritarian attempt to silence their voices. Now, silencing their voices is not just disagreeing with their opinions. It's closing them down as persons. Having a story is what qualifies one to speak. Everyone has a story. Everyone's story should be told. Everyone must tell their own story, and stories are sacred. A person's story is inviolable, integral to their human dignity. To make objective moral statements that challenge a person's story is to dehumanize them. The very existence of the oppressor is a violation of the victim's selfhood and of their sacred mythical order. I think you have concepts like whiteness as a sort of original sin within certain contexts. Guilt, not just for being, not just for doing, but for being. Whiteness is a systemic ontological condition from which one cannot extricate oneself by action or inaction, and one deserves the social equivalent of damnation for it. And it does sound like original sin, a condemnation-worthy condition that exists prior to any willing or doing on one's own part. Jacobs also points out the almost priestly role assigned to political and academic administrators in the purification of defilement, in ensuring that the community is purified of elements that would be oppressive or whatever, HR departments or other forms of administration will often be involved in this. There is among social justice advocates an ironic, strong belief in the power of the already in authority to execute the necessary cleansing of the community. Wilfred Maclay, in The Strange Persistence of Guilt, suggests that identifying as a victim or advocating for victims can be a form of self-absolution, of establishing one's own innocence. He writes, 
How can one account for the rise of the extraordinary prestige of victims as a category in the contemporary world? I believe that the explanation can be traced back to the extraordinary weight of guilt in our time. The pervasive need to find innocence through moral absolution and somehow discharge one's moral burden and the fact that the conventional means of finding that absolution or even of re keeping the range of one's responsibility for one's sins within some kind of reasonable boundaries are no longer generally available. Making a claim to the status of certified victim or identifying with victims, however, offers itself as a substitute means by which the moral burden of sin can be shifted and one's innocence affirmed. Recognition of this substitution may operate with particular strength in certain individuals, such as hoaxing memoirists. But the strangeness of the phenomenon suggests a larger shift of sensibility, which represents a change in the moral economy of sin. And almost none of it has occurred consciously. It is not something as simple as hypocrisy that we are seeing. Instead, it is a story of people working out their salvation in fear and trembling. So it, seem, so it seems to me that the, the, Christian, the Christian narrative, to, to Mark's point, offers not only relief for the shame of the victim, but it also provides absolution for the sins of the oppressor, something to which we will return. It is interesting to think about where is the, what's the outcome of the social justice discourse? What's it moving toward? How does it imagine the kingdom? And I, here I would like to just talk about two further problems with how, so we're moving now from sort of where Christ's priestly work might factor into more of maybe perhaps how his kingly work might. How does social justice discourse portray power relations between oneself, one's class, and the oppressor? We've already touched about the, that, relation, that triangulation a little bit, but how, do, how are the power relations in particular um, portrayed? Two things. Number one, there's an apparent dismissal of any notion often in social justice discourse that power might be deployed for, not merely against. Power in social justice narratives seems to be not merely an inherent feature of human relations, which it is, um, and, and well, they, they, for, in their minds, it's an inherent feature, and how could it not be if any kind of advantage whatsoever confers power over others? I mean, it's hard not to see the whole world as a power play when that's how you view uh, the, the effective advantage. But it's not just that power is inherent in relations. All, power is fundamentally competitive. If you have power, I don't. But if all power relations are fundamentally competitive, there's this kind of zero-sum game of power, it's not at all clear, at all clear, how in this discourse the struggle for power could ever be transcended. You can never regard the power of another person as a gift to you, nor would it make any sense to view one's own power not as a weapon or defense against others, but as a gift in trust for them. Where your power might be a gift to me and my power might be a gift to you. That can't actually be conceived of in social justice discourse because it's a fundamental zero-sum game. So the goal of social justice is really often less about shalom or even really equality and more about the overthrow of oppressors, real and perceived, in order to seize power for oneself. Which brings us back more cynically to what Alistair's noted about this catharsis almost of spectacles in which it appears or there's these symbolic moments in which oppressors are being crushed and dragged through the streets and, and or prominent members of one's own class are ascending to a position of advantage, which is why in many cases sim there are similar themes in social justice discourse to the themes of the alt-right, the same view of power that cannot be for only against. A second thing about power, a second problem, 
is the nature of power that is that's being wrested from the oppressor. Because what you'll notice, it seems to me, in this discourse is what is sought is often not so much particular justice for particular wrongs, as would be the case in commutative justice. What is being sought is socioeconomic advantages that have supposedly been unfairly distributed and to which one's disadvantaged group or class claims to be entitled. And here we would want to say something about a Rawlsian view of justice and redistribution. But what's really curious is that one feels personally entitled to what one's class is entitled to, even if one has not personally experienced that disadvantage for which the class is, e is aggrieved as a class. There's this kind of distribution of grievance across the class, so that I can claim a grievance even if I myself have not experienced the disadvantage. And the same, in the same way that guilt is distributed across the oppressor class. You're guilty of oppression whether you've ever oppressed anyone or not. That's how class power dynamics work. You which exposes another dimension, consumerist dimension, I think, in social justice discourse, that this demand for social and economic advantages ends up being insatiable. Because whereas in more traditional understandings of justice, it was possible for justice to eventually be done. But now it's far from clear how one could measure when advantages have finally been fairly distributed, or even if that's really the goal of the discourse. Mm -hmm. Which also explains why, as Alistair so well pointed out, why justice in social discourse is often more representational than real. You have these prominent members of a disadvantaged class who kind of rise to full representation or visual equality among those unfairly advantaged, but here's the paradox. Visible or representational ascendancy in this way is in the end accompanied by loss of your identity as a member of the disadvantaged class. This has been a complaint raised about Ta-Nehisi Coates. Is he really so disadvantaged now that he's risen up among those who were formerly perceived as the oppressors? And so you almost have this loss of your identity as a disadvantaged person by coming to a place finally of power. And so there's some very odd paradoxical power dynamics. And at no point is it clear in social justice discourse what it would look like to arrive at Shalom. So just very briefly, because we won't have time for talking now. So this is where in the last part, we're just going to talk about how the priesthood of Christ could deliver both the victim from shame and the oppressor from guilt. It's a very important piece, and how the kingship of Christ might offer us a, a place to all bow our knees in submission to an ultimate Lord instead of the continual cycle of power struggles from which there can be no relief on the terms of the social justice discourse. Is that, is that a... Yeah. I think the point, for instance, raised earlier about baptism, yes. people's bodies, I think, increasingly feel like contested realm. Yes. The way that people look at you, the way that they perceive the color of your skin, the way that they perceive your physical appearance, and these sorts of things. And I think one of the, I mean, maybe the rise in something like tattooing is an expression of that body as a site of contestation and the need to claim your body for yourself because you feel it's vulnerable in a new way. And Yet, baptism speaks to that. Yes. Baptism is the declaration, among other things, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the limbs and the organs of Christ. Your body is set apart for resurrection. And no matter what people may think about you when they look at you, the color of your skin, whatever they might, what shame you might feel on the basis of things that you have done with your body, or shame about what has been done to your body, your baptism is a declaration that you are recognized in a far greater court than any human, in far greater sight than any human being could offer. And that sort of speak, that speaks to aspects and crises of identity that people I think are feeling very keenly in the current context. The kingdom of Christ 
delivers us from the cycle of power. It presents us with a vision of power that is no longer as antagonistic as the ones that we often think in terms of. That the power of Christ is not a power that is threatening to me. In many ways, the power of Christ is the gift that gives me the confidence to go forth. Not in order to crush other people, but in order to know myself that I have the security of belonging to him. Whatever else happens, I can go out in the world in that assurance. The enthronement of Christ, as we're thinking about today particularly, this is another aspect of it. We could probably leave off that quote, yeah, to have a little more time for questions. Yes. Everything we've given to you is in the notes. You could always go back and review it if you're interested. But I guess we want to leave some time now for a quick conversation. One more, one more yeah. thing. I think when we think about the gospel, the gospel is something that speaks to our need for forgiveness. It speaks to the need that we have for vengeance as well. Our ability to recognize that there is an ultimate justice allows our justice to be penultimate. It allows us to forgive, and it allows us to hold back when we might want to strike. But when you do not have ultimate justice, I think there is so much weight put upon the catharsis of spectacle and other things like that, that they just cannot bear. So thoughts? Uh, come. Forums, social forums, ways in which people interact, uh, not only the description of social media, but just sort of the broader historical context in which fora are created and developed. Uh, thinking about Habermas and the structural transformation of the sphere. So, how do we, how could we think about how to interact with people in new forums or different forums or, uh, from uh, the ones in which these kinds of bad habits? Mm. We all understand the limitations of social media. Um, so if we can't talk to people in social media, how can we talk to them? Um, can I talk about that? Yeah. So one of the best things we've done uh, in Raleigh with Lamp Seminary is sort of what we call a soul food um, a group where we have an equal number of, of white and black guys, which is an ideal because not everyone comes all, all, all the time. But we meet um, over lunch and we just talk. and we really um, get into stuff. And it's so important to actually talk to real people mm. um, and find out their stories and how they were called, you know, um, how they've experienced racism. And again, their story is not a real thing, but you have to understand and get, get beyond those, um, those echo chambers. So I just encourage all of you to find people in your local communities um, and just go after them. Just one note on that. One of the things that was so powerful about the image of the Compton Boys is two faces opposed to each other. That's how people look at your face. Mm -hmm. It can be really important. Do you have face? Do people recognize you? Yeah. Um, I think. Yes, yeah. go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, I was actually just about to say, say that. So, interestingly, so um, a lot of what you said reflected. Um, so, Judith Butler in giving an account of oneself, which is a very, very primary text for the construction of identity modern kind of social justice movement. So the, the big question she's asking is if, if identity is fragmented and constantly being recreated through interactions with our various social groups, 
she's trying to justify any kind of moral or ethical existence, right? So that's, that's her whole project. And what she goes back to is face-to-face -face interactions. So she says that our, our, our life story, our narrative, is constantly being recreated through our social spaces when we engage in face-to-face -face interaction. Mm. And that's what creates mm. us, yep. right? Um, and, and, and honestly, uh, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's um, often about meeting people. Yes. Let me just this very short quote. Listen, this is uh, this is Judith Butler. She says, uh, "My account of myself is partial, haunted by that for which I can devise no definitive story. I cannot explain exactly why I have emerged in this way, and my efforts at narrative reconstruction are always undergoing revision." Mm. But it, it sounds very much like someone who's in desperate need of the gospel. Yes. That, that narrativizes our lives, right? Yeah. But you get there through through that face-to-face -face interaction, you know, and I think that's part of the problem with technology is it just continues the fragmentation yep. process rather than, rather than kind of solidifying it. I think one thing that I think we've seen even in a context like the RI list, when you have contexts like this where you have face-to-face -face interaction, the online interaction can feed upon that recognition. One thing, um, so I, I agree that face-to-face -face interaction, I mean, a lot of people have been saying this for a while with social media, with the rise of popularity of social media, but I do notice that a lot of times people are radicalized quietly. Yep. And they find themselves in communities that they know stand in opposition to that which they're being radicalized to. So it drives them further underground and more quiet so they actually avoid face-to-face -face, um, interaction and they seek out the little corners of the internet that they can find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And so what is something that we could do to sort of um, overcome that? I mean, they avoid face-to-face -face interaction precisely because it's so powerful. Jay, can you want to speak to that? So that this relates to that question. I don't know how many people here read the essay, but there's a really disturbing but interesting essay in the Washingtonian about when my 13-year-old son became part of the alt-right, is the title. Um, and the story is about how so something happens with this kid when he's in school, and he's accused of sexual harassment when he's like 12. And it's not clear exactly what happened. It seems like the school probably handled it badly. And he just kind of withdraws into a shell. Like, after that, dealing with all of the conflicting feelings he had for being accused over that and then how it was handled. And he starts finding 4chan and these similar kind of sites, and he's kind of radicalized through that. And one of the things that was, I was struck by in that story, though, was the way that his parents did a very good job of trying to maintain relationship with him as much as they mm -hmm. could. And he tried to shut them out a lot. <clears throat> But there's one, the, the thing that turns the whole story, and he ends up seeing through the alt-right in the end, is he asks his mother, I want to go to this rally in Washington this weekend, they live in the D.C. area, will you take me there? And she goes with him, and she walks around with him, just trying to put herself, like, share yep. that with him. And over the course of that, he kind of realizes, okay, most of these guys are kind of losers. A really pivotal thing that happens there is his mother is willing to like work through that with him, and just the patience of the parents 
then the way they handled that. Like there are parts of it where they were talking about like, we knew he was getting ratified, or we knew he was reading these things online, and so in my mind I'm like, well, why is he online? There were parts of me that struggled with the decisions they made as I was reading it, but at bottom, there was enough relational capital there built up over the course of his life yeah. that he felt safe asking his mom to take him to this, and he was willing to go there with her and then talk about it afterwards. So a quick, couple quick things. Number one, in churches and Christian ch churches and Christian schools, like we need to have much more friendship mentoring type relationships. You can't just talk information and even good doctrine at people. There has to be relationships. Number two, um, I, I do think that everything Peter has brought out about conversionitis applies to these kinds of radicalization things as well as so switching church contexts. You know, just some of the same insights about relationships. Third thing is about the impression that people have in say people people who, who would typically be part of maybe social justice communities. I have had. Two, a, a, a lesbian and a gay man in the last year and a half, both, when finding out that our church believed that homosexuality was sin, asked me this question, am I still allowed to be your friend and come to your worship services? The impression was that if I believe that homosexuality is sin, I was going to start frothing at the mouth and not want anything more to do with them. That is an impression problem. We have to find ways to get past. And that is, I would say that is a priority. Um, uh, we have uh, Joseph and then... Um, I'm going to piggyback on that, basically. One of the things that I think is really important, especially in speaking about the kingship of Christ, is that it's a kingship fundamentally, even in the earliest announcement of kingship when Christ is incarnate, of goodwill. Yes. And one of the things that you, one of the things that's really frustrating in sort of uh, an apparently principled inside of the culture wars is that our culture sees through how... Um, uh, uh, nervous and how anxious and how like oh yes. my goodness and you see you see the spirit of like that, that we feel threatened as opposed to yes. we're confident and we love you yes we're, we're goodwill towards you absolutely we want, we want you and that's and even the judgment of Christ I mean the goodwill I mean the, 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 the coming of Christ is also a coming in judgment but it's a coming it's a it's a coming that, 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 that is associated with the judgment but there's a there's a stage there's a time of God's goodwill, and I think it's especially important when we're talking about the faith, we're talking about the, the, we're talking about the relationships, it's especially important for us, I think, to be just chill with freak out. Calm down. You know, yes. Jesus is in control. And, yes. That's exactly what you're saying at dinner. Yeah. 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 Yes, absolutely. What was the line you used? Well, Peter's line, Sabbath of the soul. Sabbath of the soul. You know, it's, it's helped me enormously. Um, yes, brother, go ahead, and then I think. Um, yeah, just listen to a podcast with the young theologian James David Bennett, uh, who wrote War of Loves. Uh, he was an ex-gay activist. And uh, uh, what, was, what came clear listening to him was that the uh, big issue is fulfillment and recognition. Fulfillment, because the normative moral dimension is going to fall on dead ears if you feel like you can't be recognized and fulfilled your deepest person. So, in the homosexual community, as Christians, if you said we're not extending friendship um, and inviting them and showing them the love of, and grace of God, which this person experienced radically, like once he actually came to experience. He said there is fulfillment, like, um, and, and gave up that identity because he actually ex 
had Christians in his community, uh, especially his parents who were walking with him through that. You know, uh, yeah. he was uh, at these uh, rallies. He would stay, you know, with the dude. So that was that's very helpful. Uh, I think Pat, Patrick, and then we're about to need to wrap up. Yeah. So one of the things I think uh, I really one of the things I really appreciated about that was the ability to kind of say, you know, there are real victims and there are real oppressors, and to be able to acknowledge that as a church, I think, is is instrumental, and to focus on that too. If we think about justice, like just in this very conversation, you notice how quickly we shifted to the to the homosexual. Right. Mm -hmm. We were we started talking about social justice. And there are real concerns that social justice people have that we ought to be concerned about as well, and yet we just naturally drifted toward the homosexual, right? And that's, I think, a reflection of anxiety just amongst mm. ourselves. But to, like, acknowledge when we think about justice in the world, we don't have to just, we don't have to kind of myopically focus on what, what the social justice kind of warriors, to use that phrase, are, are, are kind of trumpeting. We have to say, hey, there are real oppressors in the world, yeah. and we are concerned about that as a church. Yes. And then encourage people to, right, identity is not, I would make one slight like, correction, I, I don't think they would say it's activated in social class. They would say it's reformed, constantly reformed mm. in various social classes. Mm. Hence the need for the constant proclamation of the gospel every Sunday, right? Yes. The constant yep. reformation of the identity yes. of saying, remember who you are so, so that you walk in newness. Improve your baptism. Right, every single week, in spite of the oppression that, that is out there, right, and is real, and that the Bible recognizes. Yeah. Just one last thing. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I think it's also important to realize that victims can also be oppressors. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so it's not. It, perhaps it's not just sort of like a, a focus on are you a victim or are you an oppressor. Sure. Yeah. You could be an oppressor and a victim. Like. Absolutely. What do we, we need, we yeah. need to maybe counsel you on both of those. Yes. Right, but when you're talking about someone's concerns, right, of, of victimhood, let's say a, a victim of trauma who might also have traumatized somebody else, yeah. right, the, the knee-jerk reaction is not to jump to the way they've traumatized somebody else, but first listen to, their, to, their, to how they've been traumatized, right, and then help them work through that oppression. That's why the gospel is so powerful, mm. because it's God laying down his power of mm. so that he could serve us through laying his wrath upon his son. Right? Yes. And that's powerful. Thing. I think that is the reversal yeah. of, of that that power Absolutely agree. that you're talking about. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Right? It is God giving himself to us. I think it's magnificent and it's just Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, Advantes, or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved.